This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. The origins for the Center for Open Science and its mission to increase openness, integrity, and reproducibility of research come out of our, uh, my laboratory's work uh, at the University of Virginia, where we study the gap between values and practices, what we think the values of scholarship are uh, and what the realities are in terms of how research gets done. And we uh, had a particular concern with ways in which the current models of how research happens interfere with the actual credibility of the research evidence that's produced at the end. And so, the, uh, so just to I'll take a, a few minutes uh, from the direction of reproducibility informing the need for openness, a requirement for openness, in order to achieve reproducible and credible evidence, uh, and how we uh, approach that from this direction, rather than starting with, well, openness is good, and maybe there will be some effects. For us, the start was in considering all of the different ways in which the research life cycle uh, when we generate ideas and hypotheses, when we design studies, we acquire data, we interrogate that data, we interpret that evidence, and then we share that. Uh, there are many places in that life cycle where things can go wrong. And by wrong, I just mean in the general sense of the claims that come out of the evidence may not be justified by the evidence itself because of decisions that we make, things that happen in the research life cycle along the way. And it isn't necessary that you uh, know all of the pieces here, uh, but at each stage of the research process, there are research practices uh, in red that are interfering with the quality of the evidence uh, that we get at the end. So p-hacking, for example, is the idea of uh, analyzing data in many different ways uh, to try to find a result that is a publishable result. It's a positive result that finds a relationship between things but as a consequence of overanalyzing the data, we lose the credibility of the statistical inferences that we arrive at at the end. It's not as credible a finding as if we hadn't analyzed it 15 different ways and just told you the one that looked nice. Right? Harking is hypothesizing after the results are known. So I find some evidence and then I say, oh, well, it must have been because of this, this, or this reason. And so I'll tell a story that that was the way that I hypothesized what was going to come out at the end. Uh, as, as if it was earlier in the life cycle that I came up with that, and then I arrived at it with the data, rather than acknowledging that that was a discovery. It's something that I saw after the fact that I didn't anticipate up front. So these uh, types of issues that are decreasing the credibility, potentially, of research results can have a lot of consequences for acceleration in scholarship, of accelerating discovery, advancing knowledge. And I'll give a couple of examples of where we've seen signals in the research literature of where that happens, and then come up to uh, how openness and open scholarship impacts can solve these problems. So one example is a, a paper from Danielle Finelli, where he looked at the research literature across a variety of different scientific domains and wanted to see how often do the researchers find evidence for their hypothesis in the paper, that they show that, in fact, what they expected up front uh, was, in fact, the case. And what I'm showing you here is the proportion of papers supporting the tested hypotheses 
from 50% uh, at the origin all the way to 90% uh, at the far right side. And what he observed is that across disciplines from uh, the space sciences uh, at the top at 70% to psychology uh, at the bottom at over 90%, researchers are almost always reporting successful evidence uh, for the, the claims that they were going to make. And in fact, this degree of positive results exceeds the likely observation of positive results that is possible based on the power of the research designs across many of these domains. So for example, in psychology, uh, a number of studies have examined what is the power of the tests uh, in, uh, that, on average that are conducted in, in the research papers. And the power of the tests average around 50%. And what that means is that if the effect that you're studying is true, if you, you have a hypothesis, this is going to, X is going to influence Y, assume that that's true, the amount of data that you have gives you a 50% chance of detecting that that's true through the standard rules of statistical inference. So if the average power of a study is 50% in the field of psychology, and yet 90% of the results are showing a positive results, that's vastly exceeding what's possible to observe as possible results, as positive results, given the power. You know, and that is assuming that every, stu every study that's investigated in psychology is a true, uh, that they already had uh, the right answer up front. So that suggests that there is some bias uh, in what is getting into the literature. Positive results are much more likely to get into the literature than negative results. And there are lots of reasons for that. One of them is that positive results are more interesting most of the time. Finding that this is related to this or that this intervention solves this problem is more interesting than saying, nope, these two things aren't related or nope, this thing didn't work. Uh, but the evidence for negative results for important for understanding question. A second line of evidence that suggests that there are problems uh, in how research is reported comes from clinical trials. And this is too small to see, so I'll uh, zoom in a bit uh, to the front end of the uh, distribution. What Chen and colleagues uh, investigated was what is the rate of reporting the outcomes of clinical trials? Uh, it's required by law that after 24 months, the results, maybe it's 12 months, can't remember, uh, that, it's, uh, that the outcomes of clinical trials when the trial is finished uh, must be reported at clinicaltrials.gov or a relevant repository or published in the literature. So their question was, are institutions meeting that requirement? Are researchers fulfilling the requirement to share that data? Because the, the point of view is that clinical trials are big investments, so we should know what the answer is. And if there's bias in reporting whether clinical trials were successful or not, then we may end up approving uh, trials of particular drugs based on a, a biased sample of the evidence. We're only reporting the positive results, not reporting the negative results. Maybe we'll end up approving drugs on false promise. Uh, so what they found was that even the best universities uh, across all of these were reporting, had only reported the results of just over 50% of the clinical trials after 24 months, even though it's required by law uh, to do so. Uh, and down to very, very poor uh, reporting rates, suggesting that there is a deep uh, challenge for return on investment for research, that lots of it is getting left out, not ever getting reported, uh, meaning that the money itself went to waste, but also potentially biasing what it is uh, that's reported in the literature. So those are reporting biases of what research gets done and then ultimately reported, which is one part of the problem. 
There are other lines of research that find that uh, what is actually done within the research process itself uh, may be biased. So one of these efforts is, again, with clinical trials, uh, where Ben Goldacre and his colleagues did the COMPARE project. And what they did was they went to uh, 67 clinical trials, and they looked at what was in the clinical trial. So in the registration of the trial, what you, ha what you have to do is say, here's the design, here are the ways that we're going to treat the data, and here are the key outcomes uh, that are to evaluate the effectiveness of this therapy. And they compared what was in the trial with what was published in the paper reporting about that trial. So these are all published, 67 published trials, and they wanted to see, did researchers report what they said they were going to do in the study? And what they found is that nine trials were perfect. And what perfect means in this context is that everything was reported in the registration before they did the research. This is what the outcomes are. And went after they did the research in the paper, they reported on those outcomes, what happened. What they also found is that 354 outcomes that were in the registration, what they said they were going to do, were not reported in the paper. They got left out. And 357 new outcomes appeared in the paper that had not appeared in the original registration. There were new things that they discovered. So this is a reporting bias of things that they committed to reporting before they knew the results, didn't end up getting reported, and new things got reported that they hadn't committed to reporting uh, beforehand. And there is concern in the way in research literature happens is that this selection bias may also be biased towards getting positive results. Researchers presumably want to find positive results. I want to find positive results, almost everything that we study. But we don't always get them. But if we have flexibility in what we choose to report, then we may be more likely to select things to report that look good. But that selection process may bias the ultimate evidence. The final paper looks more credible, looks more uh, like there's more evidence for the phenomenon than the actual evidence provides. And there's some suggestion that this may have implications uh, for the actual credibility of the evidence. So as one example, Bob Kaplan and Veronica Irvin did a, an initial study on large-scale trials from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, where what they did was they compared uh, the positive result rate. How likely was the trial to get a positive result from before when trials had to be registered, where they had to commit in advance uh, what the trial outcome, the primary outcome was going to be, which became law in 2000, compared to after uh, 2000. And their key finding was the following, that for trials that were reported before 2000, the positive result rate was 57%. 57% of trials found evidence for the particular therapy. Uh, after they had to commit in advance to what the primary outcome was, only 8% of the trials had a positive result. Right? So this isn't a perfect experiment because you weren't randomly assigned to having to commit in advance or not uh, to reporting a trial. So it's possible that uh, in this area of research, they ran out of things to discover. And so after 2000, there just weren't any things to find. Uh, and so that's why it's so few positive results rates. So we can't rule that out. Uh, but the other possibility is that if you didn't have to commit up front uh, what the main outcome was, then it may have been more likely to select an outcome that made it look like the therapy had a positive effect. All right, last research example, and then I want to transition to how we think about uh, open scholarship as addressing this. 
uh, and that is that the, uh, the consequence of all of these selection biases, selecting from a, a subset of what studies were done that get reported and a subset of what analyses were done that get reported, uh, the potential consequence is that the published literature looks more beautiful than it actually is. And if we try to reproduce the evidence from the literature, we may not find as good evidence for those phenomena that are already in the published literature as, as what it would seem just by reading the papers. And so we did a, a project where we tried to replicate uh, 100 findings from the literature in psychology by getting the original materials from the original authors, designing uh, studies that tried to... Uh, be as uh, closely adherent to the requirements that were specified for the original study, sharing those pro uh, protocols with the original authors, getting their feedback uh, in advance, registering the designs and the outcomes and the analysis plan of those studies, and then conducting high-powered tests. And what I'm showing you here is the uh, uh, density plot of the original study's p-values. So in classical statistical testing uh, with uh, null hypothesis significance testing, uh, the goal for getting a positive result is to get a p-value of less than 0.05, the dotted line at the base here. And that suggests that if there is nothing to detect here, this is an unusual result. And so getting an unusual result might mean the reason it's unusual is because there is something uh, to detect here. I have found uh, evidence for a phenomenon. And so that's the... the, the sort of de facto standard uh, for deciding you have a positive result. And as you can see here, in terms of the p-value distribution on the y-axis, 97% of the studies of the original sample of 100 that we examined had positive results as their primary finding, sort of a de facto standard for even just getting published. So in our replications, when we repeat that, here is the density plot of significance for um, p-values, 37% of the studies had a p-value less than 0.05, and then there was a wide distribution on the, on the p-distribution. When you look at it in terms of effect size, the effect sizes of our replications were about half the size of the effect sizes of the original. Now, none of that is definitive in suggesting that the original results were wrong, because there's lots of reasons that the replication could have gotten a different result than the original. The replication could have something fundamentally wrong. There could be important differences between the original and the replication that qualify uh, what, how it is you detect that particular phenomenon. But the approach was to try to eliminate all of those possibilities and do the, most, the best quality uh, re replication of the original result that we could to see if we can get those original results. And even if it is a problem of the replication, one of the challenges uh, that this kind of result identifies is that there isn't enough information about how the original study was done. It isn't transparent enough in order to necessarily do an effective replication. Okay, so that's enough of the general reproducibility context that sort of got us interested uh, in how do we solve it. And at the core of our mission of increasing openness and integrity and reproducibility research is two very basic solutions that we think are sort of at the center of what it is that can help to accelerate scholarship. Uh, and that is show your work and share, right? If we can open up scholarly communication so that people can see how we arrived at the claims, so instead of me just reporting to you the outcomes of what I found, if you can see the data that I generated, the materials that were used to generate that data, the analysis process that I used to analyze that data, how it is I interpreted that evidence, then your access to that information makes it easier for you to evaluate the credibility of my claims. And likewise, if I share that information, then it's easier for you 
to take that and reproduce the evidence yourself, extend it in new and different ways, to challenge it uh, in things that you haven't, uh, that I might not have thought of. So we think in this way that openness is functionally critical to improving reproducibility. It is a social good in the general sense that open is good, but it is also functional for actually improving the quality of the evidence uh, that we obtain. And so when we think about open uh, in what it is we're trying to uh, advance in scholarship, we think in three categories. Right? Open access is a very mature uh, discussion in uh, scholarship about the outcomes of the research, the papers that are generated at the end. People should be able to read them in order to evaluate it. Uh, and also the, there is a rapidly maturing discussion about open data and open materials, the content of research that's generated. We actually started from the very bottom one, which is open workflows, the process. How is it that you got to the inferences that you got to in the research that you do? In that research life cycle at the beginning, it's the decisions that a researcher makes that are the key factors for understanding the credibility of the claims at the end. And if those decisions are not transparent, then it's hard for scholarship to be self-correcting. Scholars, to be self-correcting, you have to know what the evidence is that might need correction. And so the self-corrective process demands uh, uh, transparency in process and content. So that really is at the core of where uh, we start on the, on the trying to identify and solve the problem of openness uh, in scholarly communication. And that is of the entire research life cycle from search and discovering what it is that I might study, developing those ideas, designing studies to test them and getting the materials to do it, the data acquisition and storage, the analysis of that data, the interpretation, and then the publication of that. And so what I'd like to do is emphasize, talk first about why the benefits of open workflow, trying to think about this in terms of a life cycle rather than at any one particular stage, and then identify some of the different things that we are trying to do to try to help advance uh, openness at different aspects uh, of this life cycle. So uh, open workflows, what are the benefits of open workflow? Well, the first is the obvious, it's the self-definitional one. It increases process transparency. If you can see how it is I do my work, then you can see how it is I do my work. So that tautology is true and has some value. You know what it is I did and how it is I made the claims. Likewise, the consequence of that is it increases accountability. If I have the flexibility to run 20 studies and only report to you the one that looks good uh, for the phenomenon that I'm investigating, then if you don't know about the other 19, uh, then you don't know that the claim that I'm making is actually a little bit of a tenuous claim, maybe a lot tenuous. Uh, if you see all 20, then I am more accountable to try to justify to you why the one that I advanced forward for publication is the right study, and all of the other 19 should be ignored for some reason. Having that openness of the workflow facilitates reproducibility of recreating that workflow, of analyzing the data that I produce in the same way, of showing the same evidence uh, as it has been shown before. And by opening the entire workflow, we can actually study the workflow. So I gave examples at the beginning of clinical trials of things that have changed between the registration, what they committed to in advance, and then what they reported at the end. The only reason we can study that in clinical trials is because they demand registration of the trials in the first place. In basic sciences, we cannot do that same study because 
People don't need to report in advance. They don't need to register their studies. Uh, so there isn't a way to actually study the research process itself and where it goes bad without requiring openness of the process, of the workflow in the first place. And so meta-science is really boomed uh, over the last four years because there is much more of the research process becoming openly accessible to study itself. Open workflow, likewise, fosters collaboration at different stages of the life cycle. There are people with expertise at all of these different stages of this life cycle that don't easily get integrated into that research life cycle. Right? People who know, for example, how to structure and manage data. A lot of researchers that are in laboratories never get any training on that, and so their data management practices are not so good. Uh, but if that workflow is open and it's easier for people to discover where research is happening, when it's as it's happening, it's a lot easier for expertise to be injected at different stages uh, of the life cycle and that's related to the next point of fostering inclusivity. With all of these different areas of expertise, more people with particular areas of expertise with openness can provide those services at the point at which they're needed rather than when it's too late. Uh, right? So if a researcher now has requirements to share their data and they bring it to someone with data management expertise after all the data is collected, it can look like, boy, it's too late. <laughs> that's a mess. This is going to take forever. If instead that person can be identified uh, at an earlier stage before the data is being generated to set up a framework for how one organizes the metadata for that, uh, they can, it makes everybody uh, more efficient uh, in the entire life cycle. Likewise, with open workflows, innovation is a lot more possible because you can see and inject uh, different solutions at different points at the research process, and we're going to give some examples uh, of that later. And then finally, uh, open workflows foster uh, openness and accessibility, protecting against lock-in. If uh, it's so easy to get locked into particular technologies uh, because there's no way to get out of them or it's highly inconvenient to get out of them, open workflows uh, in their ideal form make it very easy to take one stuff uh, so that, and move across whichever technologies are the most benefit for advancing one's uh, interests uh, with that stuff. Okay, uh, so let me return uh, to this life cycle and start to talk about some of the different ways in which we're trying to promote openness uh, at different stages. And so I'll reduce uh, this in size, but it's all those same pieces in case you can't read, uh, and start with the, um, uh, the obvious one of open access that is focused at a particular point uh, in this research life cycle. Right? The movement for open access is about improving the ease of discovering and accessing content that's already been produced. But it's really only addressing a very small slice of the actual research life cycle, the stuff that manages to get all the way through from the design of the study to the collection to the authoring to the writing and through the publication process to it finally being available in print, which is a small minority and just on its own doesn't give enough information to evaluate the credibility of that evidence. So the movement into open data that's been occurring over the last uh, five years or so, especially accelerated in the U.S. by the Holdren Memo in 2013, uh, is a big help uh, to trying to open more of the research lifecycle, particularly of the contents of research. The challenge of the, many of the existing efforts is that it is focused at the point of publication 
after the research is done, the process of opening the data is an appendage to the workflow. And so adding on something for people that are already busy, already have plenty of things to do, and they've already gotten their reward, I have my publication, asking them now to open their data is a big ask uh, because they haven't been preparing it along the way. It is, they don't know what to do with it, and there is no reward other than somebody is saying that I need to do it. And so open data will be dramatically facilitated by making it more part of the entire life cycle, that data management, rather than having all of the interventions focused at a single point in time uh, of publication. <coughs> so I won't say more about those so we can spend more time uh, on the rest. Uh, and one of those uh, is preprints. Uh, preprints have matured in, the, uh, in physics uh, and allied sciences through archive uh, and have been prominent uh, and active in uh, economics and related fields uh, and legal uh, fields for a long time as working papers. Uh, and the, the core idea in general is to accelerate the communication of scholarship. As soon as I'm done with a project, instead of you needing two years to be able to see what it is we found, we can give it to you today. Uh, and that's great for accelerating the communication of information, of getting feedback prior to publication to improve from experts other than the three reviewers that might be asked uh, about the research, and for creating a green open access solution for things that might eventually end up behind a paywall as the published article. There will always be on a preprint service that available publication. So that is an important step in opening more of the research lifecycle particularly for if we're thinking in terms of the volume of research for that, that portion of things that will be produced and written up but never actually published. This provides a means for not just accelerating but broadening uh, what is available. But there is a more fundamental part of what preprints uh, can foster in how it is we think about uh, scholarly communication. And functionally, although preprint services... Uh, uh, discussions about preprints tend to be loath to say it this way because of the concerns uh, of publishers. Preprints functionally separate publication from evaluation. Uh, they put the hands, the power of publication uh, into the author's hands. It's I that decide when this is published. If we think of publication simply as the communication of the, result, of the, of the report uh, and accessibility to others. Uh, and separates that concept of making this available from what the other, what is presumably the core function uh, of journals is, which is to evaluate the quality of that scholarship, to identify its appropriateness for a particular audience, uh, and the level of its quality given the prestige or however it is that journal uh, makes decisions. And that separation has some fundamentally important uh, consequences for how it is scholarly communication uh, evolves. One of those is that the author's incentives shift from, I need to just publish as frequently as I can, to I need to get the best evaluations that I can. Right? So in the current environment, I am reward, you know, publication is the currency of my advancement. And so if I publish more, that means I get more reward in terms of jobs and tenure and otherwise. In a pervasive preprints world, publication is trivial. I just posted on a preprint service. Uh, and they're very low standards in terms of the quality of the scholarship. Uh, it's really just, is it appropriate format? Is it appropriate fit uh, for the journal? And is it scholarship? Uh, some of the preprint services have. 
So publishing becomes trivial, which then changes how it is I think about what it is I need to get rewarded. What I need to get rewarded is interest and engagement in my research, is evaluation from credible others that say my research is worth something. Now, of course, that's what journals, purpose the journals serve now. But by separating these, authors shift at least in mindset into what the role is of journals in comparison as evaluation devices in comparison to thinking of publication as itself the end, result, end goal. This also can shift how it is publishers think about their role uh, in the scholarly communication ecosystem. So when we are thinking of publication as requiring all of the different infrastructure of running a journal, then the mindset of uh, both commercial and scholarly and institutional publishers is about the management of that infrastructure as, as the job uh, of the journal. Whereas when publishing is trivial and can be done through preprint services pervasively, then the role of journals as they are currently conceived is as evaluation devices, as, as a service, an added service to assess the credibility of that scholarship rather than generating, communicating that scholarship itself. Right? So with pervasive preprints, then we can think about what are the pieces that preprints lack that other service providers can add to try to improve the interest, the value of that preprint. One of them is the actual peer review evaluation process. Another might be copy editing. Some people just don't write very well, and so the clarity of it is a valued service that can be an added service. Right? Formatting uh, can be a value-add service. So if we convert thinking about, well, the, the communication is there, the publication is there, really now the role of the other parts of the ecosystem, the commercial elements ecosystem, is finding out what are the ways in which we can provide added value as service provision uh, for uh, accelerating the impact of that scholarship. And related to that, the, the, the focus then changes for journals in thinking about how it, what is the actual role of a scholarly uh, journal. If we're not deciding, we're not a gatekeeper anymore. We're not deciding what people get to read because it's out there that people can go find it to read. Our role now is to help people decide if they should read it, not whether they can, whether they should. All right, if that's our role, then really what us as a scholarly publisher are doing is capitalize on the expertise that we have in our scholarly community. We are all experts on crystallography, and so we want to employ our expertise on crystallography to help evaluate research about crystallography, and that will help inform others whether to take different studies seriously or not. And that, I think, much more aligns with the, the conception that we have had historically of the role of societies or institutions, the journals per se, which is the expertise that is brought to the table rather than the functions of publication itself. Likewise, as an amplifier is if a journal with a particular set of reputations about how they evaluate evidence say this is something worth paying attention to, then many more people uh, can be, can, that can reach many more people than just the authors sharing on the preprint uh, themselves. And then finally, the value from our perspective of preprints and separating publication from evaluation is a systems infrastructure uh, benefit. And that is that having a common framework to make this easy opens opportunities for innovation, that we could, with an open infrastructure, make it a lot easier for communities to start mechanisms of communication 
uh, and manage the scholarly communication process themselves rather than have to depend on an external uh, agent, uh, a publisher, uh, to be able to do that. And so this last one is really where we see our uh, value add uh, in the preprint uh, service uh, community, and that is through uh, the OSF preprints. So OSF is our core infrastructure uh, for sort of promoting openness of the entire research lifecycle. And I'll describe later more about the interfaces uh, OSF uh, preprints is one interface uh, on, the, on the open science framework, which we are trying to rebrand OSF because we regretted almost immediately putting science into it. We sort of called it the open scholarly framework, uh, but we didn't, uh, so we're now KFCing this. So you won't know anything's fried. It's now just OSF. Uh, it's good for you, I promise. You can eat our chicken. Uh, so, the, uh, so the OSF preprint service uh, is a discovery mechanism for preprints and a submission service. Uh, so when someone posts a, a preprint on OSF, uh, it does all of the things that communicating uh, scholarship is uh, supposed to do, uh, and you can make it easy to discover and download uh, preprints. Uh, the key part of OSF preprints itself is that it's an aggregator across preprint services. So this is hard to see. I'll zoom in on the left side here which is uh, through the share system. So the share service is an open data set of scholarly events of all different kinds. Uh, all of the preprint services, the major preprint services that we can access uh, are feeded into share as a data set. And then the OSF preprint service, its search is on all preprints in the share data set. So across the different uh, preprint services, whether we host them or not, uh, you can discover them all through the same interface. Uh, and this is trying to just make it easier to improve access uh, to any service uh, wherever it is. So that's one key part, is aggregated search across services. The other key part of OSF preprints is its brandability. So we have this uh, system set up as composable interfaces. So we have a generalized interface for OSF preprints, how it is you share preprints uh, or a system for sharing preprints. And then that can be any community that wants to start their own service can contact us, give us a few pieces of metadata, logo, color scheme, and then we launch a service for their community. And so Social Archive has their own for so, uh, social sciences, engineering archive for, uh, for engineering, Sci Archive, Agrichive, Earth Archive. There are now 18 uh, launched uh, services uh, for preprints across uh, research communities from a variety of different groups that decided we want to make it easier for researchers in our area to share uh, material, to share the outputs of their research. And so those include uh, uh, scholarly societies that have said we want to do this for our area of research. For example, uh, the Electrochemical Society hasn't launched their preprint service yet, but they are about to launch a preprint service for electrochemistry. Uh, also, consortia, like Law Archive, uh, is a collaboration of the uh, Cornell Library uh, and two uh, national um, uh, law uh, library, library groups. Uh, there's Funders Focus Archive for Focus Ultrasound Research. Uh, has a preprint service for focused ultrasound research. I didn't know there was a substantial amount of focus ultrasound research, but, well, there isn't a, a lot because there's only two preprints on their service so far, but there, there may be more out there. I don't know. They know better than I do. Uh, and then uh, a lot of them are grassroots. 
a community of uh, scholars in a particular domain decided, we want a preprint service for our domain. And so they got together. Earth Archive was a bunch of different people that didn't know each other, but each expressed interest in the earth sciences to start a preprint service. And so we connected them together, and they said, let's do it. And they started a preprint service as a community. And set. So the key for us is giving them the technology so that they can focus on the community. So they don't need to know how it is all this stuff in the background works. They shouldn't have to worry about any of that. What they should do is focus on their expertise, the content of the research that they are trying to promote, uh, and the engagement with the community. Because science and scholarship more generally is a lot of small world communities. Uh, and so the best access points to changing uh, norms toward openness is to enable those communities to change themselves, give them some infrastructure, and let them figure out how to best use that infrastructure for the community needs. And so the growth uh, in preprints in these services has been, uh, has been very good. This is almost a year's worth of, of data uh, across our different services just to illustrate the growth. We had, uh, I guess, May 8th of last year, just under 2,500 uh, preprints available. Uh, as of the beginning of this month, we were right at 10,000. It's like 10,500 now or something like that. Uh, so there's a rapid uh, engagement uh, growth in a lot of communities that haven't previously been doing anything uh, with preprints. But once the concept is there and once there's a community with it, within uh, a group doing it within that community, uh, the engagement has increased very quickly. So that was preprints. I want to now move to other stages of the research life cycle and how in inculcating uh, more project management and data management into how research happens along the life cycle can ultimately improve the reproducibility of that evidence. Remember, so our, the outcome for us is really how do we improve the, the pace of discovery and the quality of the evidence at the end. Uh, and if you know anything about researchers, project management and data management are two things they're pretty sure they don't want to know anything about. Uh, because they just want to work on their scholarship. Like, what is all of this data management stuff? It's just not relevant to the questions that I'm trying to answer. Of course it is relevant. It's just not the set of skills and the set of things uh, that researchers tend to think about. They tend to be thinking about the problem that they're trying to solve. And so the process of doing that well is not something that comes naturally to many uh, researchers, and so they need systems and other experts that have those skills to try to help that along if it can be integrated with the life cycle as it happens. And so we conceive of this sort of the opening of the process as being a primary challenge for the, a primary challenge for that is being the fact that researchers aren't at all prepared to open their process. They don't have a workflow that facilitates open sharing that anyone else would be able to comprehend in any way. Right? If you look at any of my lab work from 10 years ago, I don't understand any of it. Right? It's not just that it's, it's only understandable to a few. It's understandable to none. Uh, and that means that it has no continuing value. It is not accessible to anybody. And so there are three things that we focus on in terms of thinking about how can we build tools that will make it easier to make more of that research lifecycle transparent and accessible. Right? One is a problem is I'm not organized to share my work. I just don't have other things. I don't have time to share it. It's a lot of extra work. You're asking me to do more stuff uh, that uh, I'm just too busy for. I'm trying to turn out the next paper. And I'm worried that if other people have access to my stuff, that they're going to use it before I do. 
Right? All of my rewards are about the data that I have that I feel like is mine. Uh, and that's what I need, to, I need to keep because I have that strong sense of ownership over it in order to get competitive advantage in the field. And the OSF tries to address each of these by meeting researchers where they are. Let's not require researchers to think in a whole different way. Let's try to integrate with the work, workflows that they have now and support those workflows to nudge them uh, toward greater openness and reproducibility. So OSF is a project uh, management service as its primary concept, help researchers to just manage their workflows uh, in a way that uh, gives them a tool where they will never lose their data uh, because it's now backed up for them. Uh, they, will not, they can connect it with collaborators, connect collaborators all to the same project so that if data that one person was managing and that person disappears, they don't lose the data as well, uh, facilitating uh, uh, information transfer across those, et cetera. Uh, that happens across, it's to support that entire research lifecycle. And a key element is that it integrates public and private workflows. So let me just give a little bit more of that. We haven't finished shifting the branding away from open science framework, but you'll see every, every week there's less science uh, at OSF and more just OSF. Uh, we're just do it, doing it slowly over time. Uh, okay, so I mentioned this already. Collab so key, just wanted to highlight some key features, collaboration, documentation, and archiving. Right? The service is free. Researchers log in. They create projects. They add collaborators to those projects. They put whatever things they want into those projects, manage, manage it in the sort of format that they want, but it's entirely unstructured. Uh, so uh, they can have challenges if they don't already have a mindset for how it is they organize uh, their projects, but it at least provides a framework for doing uh, that organization and connecting other people uh, to that so that they can all access the same uh, kind of content. Uh, so that's all uh, just illustration of that. A second uh, key feature that researchers understand conceptually but don't often practice is the notion of version control. Version control in the average scholar's daily practice is final, 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 this one is final, uh, nope, this one, use this one, uh, as the different files that exist in their uh, folder structure. Version control is, is well elaborated in uh, software development for how one can do it effectively and efficiently. What the OSF does is create sort of an abstraction of a lot of the more sophisticated ver version control tools and just makes it very simple. If you upload a file that is the same name as a prior file that's on there, it creates another version. And it creates hashes of each of those prior versions, so you can always see the version history. You don't lose final, final. You can still get back to that one. Uh, and you see exactly the dates at which everything was uploaded and changed to try to just make that entire process of seeing the version history of documents uh, much more easy, easier and accessible uh, to the researchers, to make it automatic. Right? So the real key thing for us is if researchers don't do it now as an active behavior, can we automate it in a way that they don't have to start doing it, that it just does it for them uh, and improves those practices? Likewise, with this idea of merging public and private workflows, the real target here is this idea that all of the work for making something public in many open data uses has been conceived of as its own activity that's after all the research is done and is a, lot, a high burden uh, to actually prepare it all for public use. If we can merge public and private workflows so that at any time a researcher wants to on the OSF, they can open any part of the research project 
but they can keep the rest of it closed, then they can start to think about things that these things will be open eventually. So if I start a project knowing that it's going to be open, then I'm much more likely to start to introduce practices that would make it so it's right up front that this is something that I'll be able to share, rather than only thinking about that after the work is already completed. And so the control of private and public workflows being simultaneously useful or simultaneously available means that even active projects, if I'm prepared to make parts of this stuff available, I can continue working on other parts that are still private and only make them available if and when I ever want to do so. So we give researchers that control of that button, make public button in the corner so that they don't have to make anything public. That was the other part of open science framework that we realized was poor branding. Uh, it said open in the title. It doesn't have to be open. You can stay closed all you want. It just makes it easy to be open. And easy open science framework, that doesn't sound right. Uh, so making it simple uh, to go open then means that openness is just a decision uh, of do I want to be open rather than a practical decision of do I have the time to be open? Can I do all the work to be open? All of that should, and the ideal word, already be done. And so it's just a matter of desire of whether this stuff I want to share or not. Last point, just to make very quickly as an example, is that every uh, object on the OSF has uh, persistent identifiers to help with the provenance and discovery uh, of that work, uh, both with uh, automatically generated citations uh, and OSF uh, URLs uh, that are permanent and then you can generate DOIs uh, for any project, et cetera, et cetera. So I just want to point that out quickly. Uh, okay, so those are key aspects of during the research life cycle that researchers can be doing the behaviors as they do their work that make their, their data more accessible to their colleagues in a private way that can then very easily transition to making it more accessible to people that are not their direct colleagues in a public way. And if that data management is happening during the research life cycle, we can actually change open data at that stage and focus on what's actually happening process-wise at that stage of the research life cycle, which is review. And think about how can we elaborate uh, openness and review with more of, this, uh, more of these pieces now being openly accessible uh, for others to innovate on the process of review. So, for example, all of these different papers, what I had as preprint services, you know, across that I'll call it paper services, uh, each of these community-run services can decide themselves what kind of review they want to integrate. And this can be a very sort of an innovative testbed of different services saying, we want to try to have radically open review. Everybody is going to be identified in the process. People will self-nominate. Uh, they will make all of the reviews public. Uh, the exchanges back and forth will all be public, et cetera, et cetera. Another group says, we're going to try doing entirely post-publication review, but it will all be private, and so we won't share what the reviews are, uh, but we will give a grade. And another service says, oh, no, no, we want to try with, with both pre-publication review and then post-publication review of adversaries. And so they all fight in the middle of what gets in and what fights out. And so there's all kinds of different things that could be tested in how peer review happens. We, we arrived at the system that we have now in an ad hoc way rather than a way that came out of an empirical evaluation of different models of how it is we evaluate scholarship. And so with an open community of services that have their own local control, their community is operating these things, they can start to build in different styles of moderation uh, and different styles of review. Uh, and with 
that being, you know, with an emphasis on open licensing, then we can even have innovation on the same articles of different styles of review. So is, if the services all adopt open licensing standards, then you can imagine some services would say, we have pre-moderation review, so we don't let things into our service unless we deem them acceptable. Another service might say, you know what we do is we don't actually accept submissions. We only go out there and look at what's on other services, and we evaluate those things. And that's, that's our role, is we just evaluate them on this particular thing. We're really interested in this area of methodology, and so we just evaluate things on the quality of that particular part of methodology. And so we can bring uh, those papers into our service uh, because they're openly licensed and provide another review and essentially another publication in our service. You earned admission into our service that highlights the best methodology. And so with open licensing and with an open system that allows that innovation, we can see lots of different things being tested in the community to see what kinds of evaluational ones uh, that, that hit, that people get interested and engaged in. Okay, uh, last example, and then we'll uh, stop for whatever questions and discussion, uh, is registration. Uh, registration has a very important function uh, in uh, empirical research, and that is making a commitment prior to actually observing the outcomes of the research to how you're going to analyze that data. So when I talked about flexibility in some of those early examples, the lack of making a commitment in advance means that I have discretion. I can analyze my data in lots of different ways and report to you only the ways that look best uh, for my findings. And I, you know, I say that in a way that could be deliberate. It could also be entirely non-deliberate. Research is hard, and so I'm trying to figure out how to analyze the data and may convince myself that this one way that looks the best is actually the best way to do it without intending to be misleading in any way. But with registration, providing a commitment in advance, this is how I'm going to analyze the data, this is what I'm going to report, then provides some accountability and puts a pin as a point in time in the research life cycle. This is what was intended about this research at this point in time so that there's always opportunity to compare that later. And so that's the real service like of clinicaltrials.gov in those earlier examples is being able to see what was the plan at this point in time in the life cycle. How does that compare with what ended up happening, what ended up being reported at the end? And so the registration services at OSF are snapshots. The project is created. It looks like this. Uh, there, there is a per permanent identifier for the active project. And then if I go through the registration process, it creates a permanent connection to a new identifier that is a snapshot in time. This is what the project existed, how it existed. It's all time stamped for what it looked like then. And during the registration, you add metadata uh, about what it is, why it is you're registering, what it means uh, that you're registering the project in that state at that particular time. And so that is a, a critically important piece for many stages of the research lifecycle. The... Uh, so I, I pointed it out at the onset of research. You can also imagine using the registration service as data repository. So in the active data, data management lifecycle, right, researchers are doing things with their data as they're going through uh, their research. When they are ready to publish the paper and they're sort of done, that data set, they want to have some permanence to reflect what it is that it's reported in the paper. It would be nice to have a snapshot of that too, which is essentially putting it into a permanent repository, right? Active data management as uh, through the life cycle of research, if they register it at the point of publication, now they have a snapshot of the data set as a standard storage in a repository 
and they can still continue to work with that data in an active way uh, in the project independently of what happened in that particular paper. Most uh, our core hope with uh, technology is to foster a shared uh, open public goods framework. And there's a couple key problems uh, that we see as needing uh, some solution. Uh, you know, an infra, oops, it says infrastructure challenge. Uh, the challenge for infrastructure in, in scholarship is that the stakeholders uh, and communities are decentralized and siloed. And if you Google silos, what, you don't find many pictures like this. You mostly find pictures like this. They're, they're all falling apart. And of course, that's good, right? We want to break down the silos. Uh, because that is what, one of the key inhibitions to how it is we can be more efficient uh, with our scholarly infrastructures. So the problem to solve with the current mindset of how a lot of infrastructure gets built to support scholarly communication is that they're siloed solutions, they're closed, they're not actually open for others to innovate on. Uh, communities that have lots of resources build them, but other communities that don't have no access uh, to those. There's tons of redundancy. Every group is building their own uh, repository, their own infrastructure for preprints, their own X, Y, and Z. Uh, those solutions are not designed to be scalable because they're thinking about the problem that they're solving immediately rather than a more general problem. And because there's so many, sustainability is a substantial problem. There's all that redundancy means just more dollars needed to support all of those different infrastructures. So the, the obvious goals uh, in that context are to try to promote an open infrastructure that is a shared infrastructure, that is interoperable and composable so that different resources from different places can be connected together to work uh, seamlessly without it all needing to be centralized. There can be many modular units that different communities operate themselves. And if we can abstract general solutions of things that all of those services need to do, all of them need security. All of them need authentication services. All of them need data storage. All of them need uh, communication services, workflow management. All of those common needs can be abstracted so that they're not disciplinary specific or content specific in any way. And instead, we can build the specific constraints on top of that so that they can all use the same common core tools for lots of different kinds of solutions. And that itself is what promotes scalability, is if you, can if you can separate general solutions from specific interfaces to those solutions, then you can scale the infrastructure to solve lots of different purposes. And that can dramatically increase inclusivity by lowering the individual costs and providing an open framework for many different types of solutions, which ideally, in terms of sustainability, would distribute the overall ownership. So that really is at the core of how the OSF tries to build a service uh, that can be sustainable and accessible to many different communities. So at the core, the OSF is three different things. A set of services, authentication, security, data management, storage, provenance, all of the different pieces of what all kinds of scholarly communication services need. Uh, an ecosystem of services. So it has an abstract, uh, an API at the middle of the OSF that connects to a variety of different services, storage services like uh, Dropbox or Google Drive for active data management or long-term store uh, like Dataverse or Dryad. So that ecosystem allows researchers or communities to connect the services that they use to a common framework so that they can use the services they want to use but take advantage of all the other services that already exist in the system so they don't have to build those themselves. 
Uh, and then data, uh, like the share data set, can be used for lots of different things because it connects lots of different kinds of data uh, that can be, when you just add constraint, can be used for lots of specific purposes. On top of that, as an entirely independent layer, are the interfaces. How do I engage with those services? So one can use that same set of services and data and connections to build repositories or preprint services or institutional layers uh, or registries uh, for registering uh, that content, like pre-registration, uh, or forming journals, etc. And each of those uh, at that middle layer are just interfaces on that same core set of services that solve a particular problem. So if a researcher is thinking, I want to share a paper, then preprint service provides an easy one, two, three, four, five step solution to sharing a paper. But that paper now is also part of an entire ecosystem where if they say, you know what, I, I guess I could add my data to that. Well, it's already connected to the rest of the OSF, so they can now add their data uh, to connect it to their paper. And they say, oh, you know what, I actually registered that uh, at clinical trials. It'd be nice to connect that to it as well. So if we can provide a, interfaces to engage on particular problems that researchers want to solve, then we can connect them to other parts of the life cycle where they want to do similar things related to that project and connect all of that uh, together. And then each of those interfaces, as a general interface, can be branded for particular communities to run themselves. That way, distributing the effective ownership and operation of the infrastructure across a variety of different communities. So I'll just close with just some uh, uh, illustrations of adoption uh, rates of users and projects and registrations. Uh, these are out of date. This was, I think those are the numbers that uh, you might have had for uh, users at 68,000 or something in uh, August of 2017. Now we're, we're right over 90,000, I think, uh, registered users. We're adding about 170 a day. Uh, and projects and registrations accelerating rapidly. So let me stop in noting that uh, changing a research culture uh, is a distributed uh, problem, right? That scholarship is decentralized. There's many different players. And so the, the focus of our infrastructure strategies on the bottom two pieces is that we need tools to make it possible for researchers to be more open and reproducible. And we need to focus on the interfaces, the experience, engage them in the workflow at the points that they need to be engaged to make it easy for them to do that. And in the talk uh, that I gave this morning, and the slides are likewise available, I talked about the top three parts uh, of the uh, pyramid uh, is enabling communities, like with the preprint services, so that they can change the norms in their field. We now share stuff. Isn't that great? You can share stuff too. Uh, and then shifting the incentives and how it is people get rewarded so that being open and reproducible in one's work is part of their advancement in their careers and then the policies that all of the different institutional stakeholders use to try to help facilitate uh, all of that. So I will end with that. There are links uh, here, including to these slides, uh, if you would like them. So thank you very much for coming, and I'll be happy to have questions for whatever time we have left. So thank you.